Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. So, listener, it's episode 17, our return to the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. For you, it's been a week. For us, it's been like two minutes. Yes. So, we're probably not going to have a lot of banter. Uh, I don't know. Should we just jump right into it? I think we should. Again, for us, we're going through it all in real time and. It doesn't feel like a peppy, cheerful conversation fits this moment of, like, the real-time reality. Very much. Very much. I say we just get right to it. Okay. All right. So I'm going to kind of continue. Last time we finished by talking about all of the known identified victims of the killer known as the Green River Killer and later discovered to be Gary Ridgway. It's important to know, though, that when he confessed, he confessed to 71 murders. And at other times, he said that he had actually lost count. So even though he has been convicted, he will never see the light of day, so to speak, again, there are still probably victims out there and there are still a lot of families who don't have I mean closure is not the right word but don't have knowledge of what happened to their loved ones and so I want to go through that list because it's not an insignificant list we have um, Kelly K. McGinnis who was 18 and Ridgeway confessed to her killing but her remains have never been found Casey Ann Lee Nay Woods was 16 and is the same situation. Ridgway claimed responsibility for murdering her and her remains have never been found. Patricia Ann Osborne, who was 19, also claimed by Ridgway and has never been found. Um, Amina Agishif, who was 35, went missing in July of 1982, found in 1984 under very similar circumstances. Ridgway denies involvement in this one, but um, the Green River Task Force, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, had this case on their list um, as potentially tied to Ridgway. So this is an unsolved. We also have Tammy Lyles, who was 16, went missing in June of 1983, found in April 85, Um, And her remains were found very close to Shirley Shirell and Denise Bush, who, if you remember, were found in Oregon, the only two victims who were found outside of King County. Lyles remained unidentified until 1998. We also have Angela Marie Gerdner, who was 16 when she went missing in July of 1983 um, and was found in April 1985. She also was found in Oregon near Shirley, Denise, and Tammy. She remained unidentified until 2009. And I just want to, you know, put a plug in here for all the folks who work on these cases. As you can see, these cases don't close. People continue working on them. There are a lot of investigators out there who continue, um, you know, whenever new DNA techniques come out, they... They re-examine the evidence, they rerun tests, and that's why so many of these 
remains are then later identified is because of advancing technology. So just a shout out for all the people who do that hard and I think kind of thankless work. I, I now want to talk about a couple of cases where the MO is similar, the timing is right, and some of these fit into some of those conspicuous kind of gaps in crime that I pointed out um, in the last episode. So we have a, another unidentified set of remains, just called Jane Doe. I don't have a number on this one. And there's no estimate of her age range. She, was, she went um, missing in December 1980. We also have another, another victim of some crime, Christy Lynn Vorak, who was only 13. Uh, she went missing in October October 31st, 1982, so close to the early part of, of his crimes, um, remains have never been discovered. Patricia Ann LeBlanc, who was 15 when she went missing October 12th, 1983, also no remains have been found. Darcy Ward, who was 16 when she went missing April 24th, 1990. Cora McGurk, who was 22 on July 12th, 1991, when she went missing. And then we come back to Deborah Yvonne Wims, the sister, if you remember, of Cheryl Lee, who was one of the identified um, and confirmed victims that we talked about in the last episode. Now, if you remember, I said that she went missing um, in 1990. It was October 25th, 1990. Her remains have never been found but she did disappear under very similar circumstances. And when I dug into this, they, they had similar lives in that they both had um, been involved in sex work. And Cheryl's pimp, it was later discovered, was the brother of Deborah's pimp. So in terms of the circumstances, not any value judgment on what they were doing, but in terms of the circumstances, they ran in similar circles. And one thing we'll get to is Cheryl and the way her abduction went down actually led to the final break that gave police what they needed to get Ridgeway. So we'll talk about that. But this is just an interesting connection here. Now, again, Ridgeway has been questioned about her disappearance and denies it. And part of the thinking is, well, you know, he's admitted to 71 and even more, maybe why would he deny this one? But why do pieces of shit do anything? I think to just kind of take the word of a monster like this doesn't make sense. But this is another case that is unsolved. Well, so, and also, mm -hmm. memory. Yeah. I mean, he might deny it deny it deny it and it could just for spite and it could be just for fun or he could actually doesn't think so because mm -hmm. he killed so many people he doesn't actually remember yeah yeah and that's one of the things that you know i wonder about and some people don't believe i mean there are times when he seems to have quite a good memory and he'll remember certain things that are maybe unexpected and then other times that he kind of claims that he doesn't remember things. And so I think there's a fair amount of skepticism about him really talking about what he can remember and what he can't. And I know that I've read in other serial cases, there's some hesitance to talk about them because once they talk about it, then they're not their special secret. 
kind of thing. And they really kind of get off on this idea of having this private thing in their mind. And so it could be that he's holding some back so that he still has some that are just his. So, but, you know, we talked about 49 people in the last episode. And now we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 12 more um, who are suspected connection or he's confessed but the remains have not been found 12 more families out there that were just destroyed by this sense you know senseless acts and I did do just again because I had to in order to parse and kind of make any sense at all of all of this I I made out a little table and you know we talk about you know, identities in relation to crime and how certain crimes are overrepresented in the culture and certain are underrepresented. And so I just did a little tally, you know, presenting identities. Sometimes I could find evidence of what race someone identified as and sometimes I couldn't. But I I did what the best that I could based on how people presented. And the group was overwhelmingly white. But when you look at the total numbers, like, Almost a third were women of color, which I think is more than the general population in Seattle at that time in terms of uh, the demographics. So just a side note, you know, I, I think that he preyed on people based on vulnerability, not necessarily based on race. But, um, you know, I think it speaks to who the vulnerable are in our society and disproportionately women of color who because of systemic racism are oftentimes put in positions or have no choice forced choices um, to be in these vulnerable situations um, disproportionately so now i want to head on over to kind of the procedural side we've talked about the victims we've talked about some unsolved cases but we kind of just jumped into this one knowing that everyone listening out there knows who the green river killer is that's not new information that we're going to share with Mm -hmm. you but now i want to go back kind of through it from a timeline perspective there's so many ways to go into this case cases and to look at it and understand it but i wanted to do kind of a timeline as if we're we're going along with the general public in 1982. The first kind of moment that this this um, monster kind of be- becomes a blip in anyone's consciousness is July 15th, 1982. And we talked about that important day. Um, and that's when the first known victim, Wendy Lee Cofield, is found um, in the Green River under the Peck Bridge in Kent, Washington. So that's kind of the beginning. But again, when that day happened and her remains were found, no one understood that this was the beginning of a nightmare, really, that would go on for decades. But on, on August 16th, 1982, a month and a day after the first victim had been found, there were four more recently discovered victims, all found in that Green River area, and that's where the moniker came from. Um, so on August 16th, the Green River Task Force was formed, and members included Robert Keppel and Dave Reichert, um, who are named, those are names that will come up again and again. And as part of the task force, I mean, 
there were, I think, 18 people at the height of the task force working on all of these cases and tons of other investigators and people helping out um, from around the area. But during that time, one thing that the task force is kind of famous for is having interviewed incarcerated serial killer Ted Bundy, who had also operated in that time, as Andrew mentioned in the last episode, um, in that time, in that location. And so he was already on death row and they saw him as a resource. You know, again, the FBI profiling was really becoming more well-known and other investigators. I think the, the folks who created the behavioral unit at the FBI were going around the country talking about their methods. And I think these investigators saw that there was some possibility in getting insight into what this killer was thinking and feeling and doing and what was driving this person by talking to Ted Bundy. Um, and Ted Bundy was was a very chatty guy and had, had no compunction about sharing um, what he knew. So during one of these interviews or multiple interviews that they had with Bundy, he told the task force that the killer was likely returning to the site of the remains to have intercourse with the bodies. And that is something that was later discovered to be true. So once they had identified who the Green River killer was um, and they had interviews with Ridgeway, he admitted that that is something that he did. And so Bundy suggested staking out any new location where they found remains because they might be able to catch the perpetrator in that act. And that could be one way that they might find him. But Reichert um, told Time Magazine around the time in relation to the case, every time you found a body, it was like being hit on the head with a baseball bat. So I think that's just indicative of the, the pressure put on the task force at that time. Um, and again, when we think about the victims and we go through the time span, I mean, 49 victims all within a span of, I mean, most of them happened between 82 and 84. And so I think if it had been one or two people, and again, with the view of people who engage in sex work, these cases might've just been swept under the rug, but the quantity of them. Yeah it could not be ignored regardless of what people may or may not have thought about people who worked um, in, in sex work. So during this time, we know now with hindsight that Ridgeway was arrested twice for soliciting prostitution, once in 1982 and again in October 2001. There was also a charge in 1980 against Ridgeway. He was arrested for assaulting a sex worker. She claimed that he had choked her. And Ridgway told authorities at that time that he attacked her in self-defense um, because she was biting him. And, you know, they just believed him. And that was the end of it, which, again, is just a peek into the way that sex workers were viewed then and, and still, but hopefully to a lesser degree now. It's just disgusting. But he was on police's radar as early as 1980. Mm -hmm. Then on April 30th, 1983, that's when Ridgway officially became a suspect. And I mentioned in the last episode that I would come back to this, but there's one particular incident. Um, the victim is Marie Malvar and her boyfriend 
witnessed her getting into a distinctive truck and he sensed that something was off and so he tried to follow the truck but he lost track of it at an intersection then days later when she was not anywhere to be found and was searching for her the boyfriend saw that same distinctive truck parked at a house a few blocks from where he lived so he went directly to the police and turns out that house and the truck belonged to Ridgeway. So at that moment, April 30th, 1983, again, he's already on their radar because mm-hmm. he's he's been picked up for soliciting prostitution. He has this kind of assault, what happened, like who knows kind of thing on his record as well. So they questioned him at that time and they considered him a suspect, but he denied all knowledge of Marie and um, there was there was no body, no evidence. It was just the boyfriend saying that she had gotten into his car. Um, yeah. And so they they couldn't hold him. They had nothing to hold him on or really to force him to answer any more questions in kind of just a really chilling, creepy Note here, later when he was finally caught and gave his confession, he noted that during that questioning, he was leaning against a fence in his yard with his arms behind him to hide scratches that he had gotten all over his arms during Marie's murder. And when police left, he went back into the house and he burned his arms with acid to cover the scratches. So... Yeah. In May 1984, he was given a polygraph test. So again, he never was not on police's radar after that point in 1983. He was always a suspect and police were watching and waiting to be able to bring him in. They brought him in for a polygraph in May 1984 and he passed it. Again, we know that polygraph is like not reliable, not admissible, but they wanted that might give them something to get a warrant, but he passed it. In 1987, Ridgway provided the task force with a saliva sample. Unfortunately, at the time, DNA testing was not like it is today, and it didn't link him with any known crimes, but police held on to that saliva sample. Then in March 2001, there was new kind of blood. At that point, there was only one person in the department who had been on the original task force. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the new folks came in and they did a complete fresh review of all the evidence. Now, an investigation of the size, I didn't find any reference to it, but I can only imagine how much evidence that would be. There was a fresh review of all physical evidence looking at old fingernail samples, anything that might have more DNA on it or other evidence that had been missed because of um, older techniques. And they found some. They In that scan, they found some very small samples of DNA and they re-ran it against that fateful saliva sample that he had given. I think probably at that point feeling pretty invincible. I mean, Mm -hmm. because he had been up to that point. And on November 30th, 2001, King County Sheriff Reichert, who, again, you remember he was one of those people on the task force, announced that the so-called Green River Killer had been apprehended. 
at that time, he was the only one left um, from the original investigation. And I think for police, that feeling must have been simultaneously such a huge relief, but also so wrenching, knowing that all along they had known who it was and they just couldn't stop him. So on November 5th, 2003, Ridgway pled guilty. And this was a pretty contentious kind of thing. The then King County prosecutor, Norma Lang, accepted a plea deal that agreed not to seek the death penalty in exchange for Ridgway's cooperation in locating the remains of other victims. And if you remember, we mentioned several who were found simply from his confession and the directions that he gave. During this plea process he confessed to 71 murders and he stated as i alluded to before i killed so many women quote i killed so many women i have a hard time keeping them straight end quote he killed most of his victims it turns out in his house or his truck or sometimes outside in a secluded area another quote from him most of the time i killed them the first time i met them i do not have a good memory for faces end quote So essentially he's saying here, there were so many and I didn't know them. It was the first time I had met them for most of them. I didn't know their names. I don't remember faces. So, I mean, I think that this is a little bit, I don't know. People have reacted to these statements in a variety of ways. Some people think it's bullshit and that he knows a lot more than he shared. And I read some some statements here saying that The plea deal was made for his cooperation in finding dozens of other victims. When I went through that list and found all the ones that noted um, was only found because of his directions, there were like three. So, Um, you know, depending on what your feelings are about the death penalty, he made a pretty good deal here. He helped three families find remains, and um, he escaped the death penalty for what is the second worst serial case in American history? Worst being based on number. Mm-hmm. In December 18th, 2003, so just a month later, he was sentenced to 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole. Um, this was increased to 49 life sentences when the remains of Becky Marrero were discovered on December 21st, 2010. And that is what became of the shit stain. Now, I have a couple of just random little facts here. I'm not going to go into his upbringing or motivations because I think that's kind of covered in other places and really it centers him too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's pretty clear, again, like we're not shrinks, we can't diagnose, but in terms of sociopath, psychopath, I think it's pretty clear he falls on the psychopath side in that he went to efforts to seem like a normal person you know mm-hmm. he he put some time and thought into covering and and presenting a face to the world of just like a normal dude but random facts that i found that may or may not interest people when ridgeway was young he exhibited extended enoresis which is the clinical word for bedwetting which most people probably know is one of the three traits that make up the McDonald triad, AKA the triad of sociopathy or the homicidal triad. 
which I should note is a well-known thing, but its scientific validity is pretty questionable, especially when it comes to the bedwetting. So that could be a whole like episode unto itself. We talk about just the McDonald triad, you and me. But um, something to note there. I think probably more tellingly are two little anecdotes that I found about his parents and the response to the bedwetting. So Ridgway's mother cleaned his genitals after bedwetting incidents. And so again, extended bedwetting. So this went on until 8, 9, 10, 11. And she did this while wearing revealing clothing. And she humiliated him in front of his brothers. So like that's a lot to unpack. Again, there's a lot of baked in misogyny, baked in classism, baked in stuff in here. So, you know, I read she wore revealing clothing. This is code for she dressed slutty. She wasn't June Cleaver type of mom, like a lot of like built in judgments there. But I, on the other hand, you know, she's fondling his genitals while wearing provocative clothing. So that happened. Ridgway's mother, again, who a lot was made of how she dressed. She dressed provocatively regularly. She told Ridgway's stories about her time working in the suit section of a department store and how men would become aroused when she measured their inseams and then she smelled their genitals. So, like, weird. Not well. Yeah, weird, creepy. Like, I, you know, I think a psychologist would probably put this in the, like, covert sexual abuse, like, mm-hmm. bucket. And his father wasn't much better. Reports say that, you know, his mom was domineering. Again, like, what does that mean? Is that code in the 80s for, you know, baked in misogyny? I don't know. But apparently, according to reports, the mother was domineering, which, again, anybody who has read or seen anything about serial killers knows is one of the, like, danger things, a domineering mom and kind of an ineffectual dad who never was able to escape her. But he happened to work as a funeral director, and he habitually told Gary stories about coworkers who engaged in necrophilia at the mortuary. So again- Yeah, normal family conversations. Yeah, he's getting some weird fucked up shit from home. Another thing to note, and we've talked about this, we talked about this with Leopold and Loeb, and we've talked about this a little bit, Ridgeway is estimated to have an IQ in the low 80s, which, depending on the scale used, is considered low average, below average, or low. Every kind of scale has its own terminology. In olden times, they that was in the, they call it dull, mm-hmm. dullness. So not necessarily kind of impaired. Uh, not necessarily an IQ that is of the level where you would notice something was different about him just in a casual meeting. But the thing that I find so interesting here is I also read that Ridgeway would occasionally contaminate crime scenes with gum, cigarettes, written materials belonging to other people. And then, of course, he caught on to having a very systematic way of um, depositing victims' remains. He he went to Oregon for some, but like having different places 
all of this points to someone who, even though maybe from a capacity standpoint, was low or below average intelligence, functionally and practically, when he was doing this thing, he was quite clever and used some clever tactics to evade detection. And so I find that very interesting. You know, we've got those, these two kind of University of Chicago educated, like IQ off the charts who make some of the dumbest mistakes. And then Ridgeway, who appears to not be, you know, not even of average intelligence is doing these things and, and got away with these crimes for a very long time and not, not simply by accident. You know, some of it was because he was smart. He was choosing people who were vulnerable. He talked about the fact that sex workers wouldn't be missed right away and might never be missed. And that would help him get away with his crimes. So, mm-hmm. you know, definitely someone who put a lot of thought into the crimes and also seems to be to have been not able to control, like had impulses that he could not control. And without kind of doing a deep dive on his psychology, you know, just knowing a little bit about his upbringing, you can see the seeds of that there. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sort of came up like IQ is like one assessment piece of a puzzle. Yeah, it's not the be all end all for sure. So the culture side, I mean, a crime this heinous, a piece of shit this bad, it, it's no wonder that it's an inspiration for a, a wide mix of pop culture. And so I'm going to sort of break it down and give you a sense by category, but it's kind of a non-exhaustive list. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcast. That really affects the algorithm and helps people find the show. Plus, if you write a review and give us five stars, we'll read it on the podcast. And who doesn't want that? So first, just sort of being nonfiction books, starting with 1991's Search for the Green River Killer by Carlton Smith and Tom Guyon. Then The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer by Robert Keppel and 1995. And, you know, you'll remember that name from Kirsten's section. Next was The Green River Killer by the King County Journal staff in 2003. The next year, Chasing the Devil by Sheriff David Reichert was released. Green River Running Red by the incomparable Anne Rule came next in 2005, followed by 2006's Serial Killers, issues explored through Green River Murders. Uh, Then three books were released in 2007, Green River Serial Killer, Biography of an Unsuspecting Wife by Penny Moorhead, which was told by Ridgway's third wife and her struggles uh, accepting the truth. Case of the Green River Killer by Diane Yancey and Defending Gary, Unraveling the Mind of the Green River Killer by Mark Prothro with help from Carlton Smith. So the last nonfiction novel was... The 39th Victim by Arlene Williams, the sister of Mary Sue Feeney, which came out in 2008. And then sort of in that same vein, there was a 2011 graphic novel entitled Grain River Killer, A True Detective Story by Jeff Jensen and Jonathan Case. And it's interesting to note that Jensen's father was Tom Jensen, one of the detectives who worked the case 20 years earlier. 
So normally we don't go into a lot of nonfiction, but I thought this one was particularly interesting with how many of the authors were personally associated to the case in one way or another. So sticking in the nonfiction vein, tons of documentaries. So I'll go through a selection quickly. Uh, Starting all the way in 1984, uh, Murder, No Apparent Motive, about serial killers and FBI profiles. Uh, They talked about the ongoing Green River Killers murders and listed them as one of the latest examples of serial murders that go on in America without any apparent motives. Uh, A 1996 episode of Unsolved Mysteries had a focus on the Green River Killer, and it focused on longtime suspect William Stevens. The episode features interviews with Stevens' family members uh, because he died in 1991 of cancer. And, you know, while being accused of a crime he didn't commit is definitely terrifying, there is absolutely no need to feel badly for this man. (laughs) In 1981, he casually walked away from a minimum security facility while doing time for burglary and avoided authorities for eight years. In his book, River, author Roderick Thorpe noted that Stevens seemed like a perfect suspect. He fit the FBI profile of a serial killer, including having poor relationships with women and a hatred for sex workers. He told friends that sex workers were, quote, spreading the AIDS epidemic along the SeaTac strip, end quote, which Seattle-Tacoma, SeaTac is shorthand for that. And according to his adopted brother, Stevens often told people that he wanted to kidnap, torture, kill, and dissect women and then fill them with rocks while taping the whole thing. So, scum, piece of shit, glad he's dead. Uh, And it's no surprise that he was a suspect, so... At first, I was like, oh, my God, how terrible it must be to be accused of a crime like this. And then it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because what is your life? Yeah. What does your life look like to for people to think that it could be you? (laughs) So, yeah, no, no sympathy for him. (laughs) But jumping sort of back to the documentaries, a 2010 episode of the documentary show Who the Bleep Did I Marry? features Ridgeway's third wife. And again, she was the one who wrote a novel about her experience. There was a 2006 episode of Crimes That Shook the World that focused on the case. The Court TV, now True TV, series Mugshots released an episode on Ridgeway in 2013. 2005, A&E featured an episode of Cold Case Files called Obsession, David Reichert and the Green River Killer. 2017, HLN premiered a true crime series, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, with the first episode being about the Green River Killer. And this hour-long episode reported on the advanced trace evidence that directly linked tiny paint particles from the victim's clothing to Ridgeway. In 2020, Investigation Discovery premiered a two-hour special titled The Green River Killer, Mind of a Monster. And just last month, October of 2021, Catching Killers was released on Netflix and includes an episode about the case that revolves around the decade-long hunt for the murderer of several women around the Green River area. Several? That's an understatement. Yeah. And lastly, uh, you're currently listening to an episode of this really great podcast called Most Foul that is covering (laughs) the case. But, but seriously, it's no surprise that a case like this would be covered time and time and time again over the years i mean starting in the 80s and as you can see 
to last month. Like it is actively ongoing. That's how the fascination with a case this big can be. But switching over to fiction, uh, the culture kind of continues. So in books, the Green River murders are discussed in the Jody Picot novel House Rules. The novel River, a novel of the Green River killings, was written by Roderick Thorpe, which I mentioned just a little bit ago. And the case was even discussed in Stephanie Meyer's third Twilight book, Eclipse, which I guess makes sense. I read those books, but I couldn't, I didn't remember that. I'm sure it was just a tidbit, but they take place in Washington, which is definitely a weird, (laughs) trivial bit of information in this sort of pop culture story surrounding the case. But I mean, immensely popular book. And over on TV, Ridgeway has influenced a lot of things repeatedly mentioned in episodes of Criminal Minds. The case has a big influence on season three of AMC's The Killing. In a 2013 interview, Vina Sood, the show's producer, stated that her inspiration for this season came from Streetwise, a book of photographs about teenage runaways in Seattle by Mary Ellen Marks that was then sort of adapted into the 1984 documentary of the same name, which Kirsten mentioned uh, one of the victims was featured in that documentary. So that was Roberta Joseph Hayes, who fell victim to Ridgeway, which led to Suits' fascination with Ridgeway overall. So this producer was familiar with the book that mm-hmm. predated the documentary and then informed the third season of this show, which was well-received by critics. Peter Skarsgård received a nomination for Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Series by the Critics' Choice Television Awards. So just another interesting way these tangential things go on to influence other creators. So moving into movies, the critics don't have as much to work with (laughs) in this front. Uh, 2004's The Riverman was a TV movie that debuted on A&E. It followed the real-life incidents around Ted Bundy helping detectives Keppel and Reichert catch the killer. Then in 2005, the movie Green River Killer was released as a direct-to-DVD film and featured a cast of people I've never heard of. (laughs) Then there was a Lifetime movie called The Capture of the Green River Killer in 2008, which surprisingly was named one of the top 10 television productions of 2008 by Variety. Hmm. It was nominated for a Gemini Award for Best Direction and Best Costuming, which, if you don't know, the Geminis are the Canadian analog to the Emmys because it was a Canadian production. Mm -hmm. And it was watched by 2 million viewers, making it then Lifetime Movie Network's most watched telecast ever. Oh, wow. So surprisingly successful overall, but then the bell curve hit its bottom with 2019's Bundy and the Green River Killer. Now I could find almost no information on this movie, but what I do have is the top review from IMDb entitled The Room Two. (laughs) And it reads, quote, incredible, really funny. The acting is genuinely the worst thing I've ever seen. I don't smoke weed, but I can imagine this would be a riot if you watched it stoned. Hilarious. End quote. Wow. (laughs) So less than stellar. But 
that said, there's a really interesting connection to this case to a truly incredible movie, Silence of the Lambs. Hmm. Now, we'll have a full discussion about this movie when we do an episode on Ted Bundy or Ed Gein, but I was honestly kind of caught off guard by this connection. So Hannibal Lecter, who advises Clarice in the film on catching Buffalo Bill, also shares traits with Bundy, who, as Kirsten mentioned, advised on the investigation into Ridgeway. One of the agents to interview Bundy was John E. Douglas, and Douglas was interviewed extensively by filmmaker Thomas Harris for The Silence of the Lambs. But that's not it for culture, so heading into the world of music, the grunge band Green River was named in reference to the murders. And the title track of their 1985 debut EP, Come On Down, discusses the murders from Ridgeway's point of view, which, if you want to torture your eardrums, it can be found on our Most Foul Pod playlist on Spotify. Mm. There's also 2002 song Deep Red Bells by singer-songwriter Nico Case, which was inspired by her own life growing up as a teenager near Seattle during the time of the murders. Mm. In a 2006 interview with the AV Club, she remembered, quote, I grew up while he was killing women, and on the news, they never talked about them like they were women. They just called them prostitutes. Mm. Myself and other little girls in my neighborhood didn't make that distinction. We thought the Green River Killer was going to kill us. We were scared of him. We'd go to school with steak knives in our pockets, end quote. Mm. And then in an interview with Perfect Sound Forever, she sort of added into this story saying, quote, it was very much a part of our psyche, and it still is, when you grow up with that kind of stuff. They knew who he was for a long time, but they couldn't bring him in on technicalities. I'm sure that it upset the people who had been looking for him that long, as much as the parents of the people he had killed. Those women's lives just never seemed that important. They weren't really made that important on the news. It was all about fear. I guess the song is basically me just thinking, what are their lives? What would their families do? End quote. Now, this is an incredible song. I highly recommend it. It's also on our Spotify playlist. Mm. Not on Spotify was 1989's Green River Waves by the UK band MDMA. And the song features lyrics about the murders. And lastly, kind of in the music arena, uh, 2003 Philadelphia power electronics duo Death Pile released gr a concept album about ridgeway and his murders but the legacy of this crime unfortunately isn't just pop culture stepping back into the true crime side of things serial killer joel rifkin who confessed to killing 17 people in new york area was deeply influenced by the case when police searched his home they found a book on the then unidentified green river killer and according to an Oxygen documentary, this along with other articles on serial killers he saved were described as almost like how-to guides mm. for how to be a serial killer. He himself thought he compared favorably to the Green River Killer. And this is a horrific quote from him. Quote, Some of the events were unconsciously copycatting. He, a.k.a. Ridgeway, buried one, I buried one. 
He went from water to land. I went from water to land. He placed one by an airport. I placed one by an airport. He did things in clusters. I did things in clusters. End quote. Ugh. Fucking nightmare. Yeah. Luckily for the world, this piece of shit wasn't quite as methodical and cautious as Ridgeway, which fortunately stopped him from being as prolific, but... I mean, 17 people. It's just a fucking nightmare. Yeah. And so a crime of this nature had its own little pop culture wave. Rifkin's mentioned in an episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit. In an episode of Seinfeld, Elaine dates a man named Joel Rifkin. And they Mm -hmm. reference the killer throughout the episode. And eventually she asks him to change his name. But I don't want to end kind of with this piece of shit so I felt it was important instead to spend a moment with the victims so Heidi Susie Balk age 25 Julie Blackbird Barbara Jacobs 31 Mary Ellen DeLuca 22 Yun Lee 31 victim number six who remains unidentified Lorraine Orviedo 28 Marianne Hallman, 39, victim number nine, who's also unidentified, Irish Sanchez, 25, Anna Lopez, 31, Violet O'Neill, 21, Mary Catherine Williams, 31, Jenny Soto, 23, Leia Evans, 28, Lauren Marquez, 30, and Tiffany Bresciani, 22. May they all rest in peace, just like Ridgeway's victims. So that's the long and complicated pop culture legacy of the Green River Killer. And sorry it's so dark to everyone, but I don't know of another way to talk about this case. Yeah, may we never see another like him. Absolutely to that. Well, I hope everyone takes deep, calming breaths. Mm-hmm some centering and move past this horrible story and as always if you feel like you need extra support we're gonna throw some listener resources into our episode notes for this one yeah and just as a reminder you know we're all connoisseurs of true crime we all spend time in this world And to think about our own biases and to think about the victims and to remember, yes, the cases are interesting. Yes, it's part of our human condition to want to know, but we need to remember the victims. I I think I mentioned this in between records, but it drives me nuts, this like hero, not hero worship, but this like cultural worship of Ted Bundy. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not, that's not what it's about for me. Yeah. Like, I, of course, I want to know how he ticks, but I don't care about his charisma mm. outside of how it worked for him. Like, I don't want to hold him up as a cultural icon of himself. I, I want to look at him as a case study for what's disgusting and wrong in this world. Right. And how and to I prevent fear it. sometimes our interests not us as you and I as individuals, but Mm -hmm. ours collectively 
it sometimes leans into that other way that I just don't like. And so remember that if we're discussing any of these cases, it's because innocent people suffered and lost. Yeah. And so many, you know, again, every one of these victims has a whole network of loved ones who experience something horrific. And in a lot of cases, an event like this ruins lives. Marriages break up. There are suicides, you know, drug abuse of the survivors. I mean, it's just the toll on humanity of a piece of shit like this is almost incalculable. So yeah, listeners, thanks for spending this time with us and thanks for focusing on the victims with us. Yeah. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. 100%. Thanks for listening to Most Vowel. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostvowelpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 